It is time for us to be about our business. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for this subject. Far and away, the thing that has changed our lives. And we'd ask that you would give us greater and better understanding of the struggles we have with faith. In your son's name, amen. Um, when you have a when you have a Bible study on what you think are these crucial elements that people don't understand, and faith is one of them, it's one that most people are very familiar with. Um, they could probably discuss it in some sort of way and run across a lot of it. You can't read through the New Testament without it leaping out of every passage. Um, and they all have had experiences with it. Our last two topics, the sublime vision and, and um, the new covenant, are a little bit more hidden from people. This is, of the five that we're looking at in this Bible study, this is probably the most familiar uh, with everyone. Uh, but I wanted to uh, look at it in, in terms of what a lot of people, knowing what faith is, we see the struggles we have, we have, our friends have, um, regarding faith, um, and to look at the scriptures and try to pull out some key defining elements that will help us understand how to uh, adjust ourselves, adjust our belief, so that we're not um, wandering around in doubt, wandering around in... in uh, ineffectual Christianity because of it. Now the first uh, few passages, on here on the right hand side, I, I wanted to lay out what the scriptures said was hanging on belief. The Mark 1 passage. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Acts 26 and he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and bear witness to the things in which you have seen me, and in those things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles, to whom I send you, to open their eyes, that they may turn from darkness to light, and with the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and a place among those who are sanctified, by faith in me. In Romans 6, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. Those are broad statements about the, direct statements about the, you might say, our entree into the faith. Uh, no pun intended, our entree into Christianity, our entree into the changed life, that it was believe the gospel, forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, um, a righteousness revealed through faith for faith. Um, when we start to, when, we, when it's introduced that way, and then you get into the more theological passages, these are... Um, the first two were narratives. Galatians 2, we know that on two fronts, faith is, the, the title of, of this is Saving Faith and Saved Faith. 
Um, and I'm not trying to be um, mysterious about that, but uh, I'm breaking that apart in the safe that you have that you pass from death to life because of it, that experience. We might call it conversion. Uh, faith in the gospel proper and the faith by which you live. So we know we need faith. Galatians 2, to be saved. We ourselves, who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet who know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law shall no one be justified. We covered that last week with the New Covenant, that the old, this old system of, of being good in front of the God had um, not been able to promote righteousness, had not promoted salvation, had only promoted conviction of sin, had only increased the trespass, and that's what it had been there for. It had never been there to save. And this message of salvation that everyone, Jew and Gentile, uh, have to be justified through faith in Jesus Christ. John 1.9, the true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home, and his own people received him not. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This, this whole, uh, you, you get it in, in later in John with... Uh, um, his chat with Nicodemus in John 3, the idea of uh, born from above. There's this metaphysical shift that the faith is the, and I know some people theologically don't like to say that you are saved on the ground of your faith, but uh, because they, they, they think it's too man-centered, but um, if you want to say that on the ground of the grace of God granted us those that believe. Those that received, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. So, we know that there's a, a major, uh, you know, a, a banner being planted at, at this point that says to come into Christ, it is a matter of belief, not law-keeping. To come into Christ, um, it is um, a, a rebirth by this faith. We're, I'm, I'm trying to have it clear that what we're claiming this faith uh, is, so that when we start to dissect the faith, uh, the, the actual phenomena that we call believing, um, we will know what rests on it. We will know that, that when we talk to unbelievers, uh, or people who are doubting, or all sorts of other variations of faith, um, we know what we're shooting for. We're shooting for these results if this faith, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, is achieved. John 3, famous passage, and Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent the Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil, everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does what is true comes to the light, that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been wrought in God. Now, we get a, 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 a beginning of a, of a not just a, 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 the dichotomy between law and faith, but we start to have the dichotomy in people here, not just the provision of God, the Mosaic law, uh, versus the provision of God in the Christ, but we have the belief of some and the failure to believe adequately, because they're not condemned because... Um, uh, what does it say? He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed. It's, but it's a, it's a pre-condemnation. It's a condemnation that is um, a condemnation that is a fixture in their life that they haven't arrived at belief. You don't be- believe beginning in your life. You don't believe. You don't begin believing, not believe beginning. You don't begin believing in your life. You begin sinning, following yourself, following your own urges. And if you don't reach belief, you're condemned already. It's a passage from not believing and doing evil because their own deeds were evil. They love darkness rather than light, so they don't come to the light. Now, we're gonna, what that entails, uh, at least as, as some of the aspects of it we're looking at tonight, that is a, uh, um, that may come back to haunt your memory uh, in, a, in a little bit. Now, those were all things that had to do with passing from death to life. We have passed into belief and consequently, by belief, saved by God. Our belief did not save us, our God saved us because we believed. He gave us the power if we believed. Now, we know we need this faith also as a saved phenomena that you live by. Galatians 3. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Looking back at the first three patterns. You received it by faith. Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, you're now ending with the flesh. Did you experience so many things in vain, if it really is in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now that's just one passage out of quite a few that talk about how we're walking as Christians. It says in one of Paul's epistles, as you received him, so live in him. Well, we received him by faith. We live in him by faith. We began by faith. We ought to be continuing by faith. We talked about it last week with the New Covenant, how people split the New Covenant up. They come into Christianity by faith, and then their churches teach them to live by the law, which is not how it ought to be. That's splitting the covenants. It's half to the new, half to the old, and it fails. This is, revisits that issue, but in, the, in regard to faith, I need to understand what faith is how I'm to husband it so that it functions in the way that I need it to function. And when I preach the gospel, I know what I'm asking someone to do. I know what I'm asking them to come to grips with. 
I know what they have to reach. Now, I can never be sure just from talking to someone and someone prays a prayer in front of me. I don't know their real hearts. You can guess, but you can watch the progress of their soul. But they either do this or they don't. And the Christians that you know, that you may have counsel with or you're trying to help through a problem, are either dealing with this or they're not. And if you know what this is, it's keeping them from living in a spirit-supplied way. That last line in verse 5 of Galatians, he who supplies the spirit to you works miracles in you. Do so by works of the law, be hearing with faith. Now, a lot of people, especially when they read the portions in the Gospels, or Jesus Christ talks a lot about, and we'll read a few of those, about you need to have faith, or ye of little faith, or, or your faith has made you well, or uh, those sorts of... And so people who want to have miracles, they read the passages about praying and having enough faith to pray and, and, um, and healing services and charismatic churches where they're expecting everybody to ratchet up their faith so they can be healed. People are concentrating on one thing. We're not here to do that. But it does say, supply the Spirit to you, works miracles among you by hearing with faith. Not just... Not just having faith. Not just being in a state, well, yeah, I believe Christian stuff. Continuing, not just to have faith, but continuing to hear with faith. Now, let's get into how the Bible defines our, our phenomena here. We're looking at the Hebrews 11 passage. Now, faith, this is Hebrews 11, 1. Now, faith is the insurance, assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's a very good definition. Very good definition. But it's problematic to us on a number of fronts. We don't, we, people, some people think it's a, an ephemeral stuff that you have or you don't have, kind of like if God would give me faith or if I had this, this ectoplasmic faith material, and more of it, I could be, I would be more assured. Uh, that assurance and conviction seems so out of our reach a lot of the times. I, I have Lewis's um, definition here on the side. He has an essay called The Obstinacy of Belief, which is quite good. But one line that comes out of it, and I quoted it on the fly, so it's not the exact wording. But Belief is the psychological exclusion of doubt without the logical exclusion of dispute. I have completely, if I believe, completely psychologically removed doubt. I have no questions about it. I could argue with somebody at the same moment. A lot of people can't argue with somebody about the f doctrines of the faith without immediately feeling that the dispute or allowing questions to arise was problematic. Uh, Lewis doesn't seem to think so. It's not Bible, so you don't have to agree with him. But whatever the case, when you go back to the belief portion, not whether or not you entertain logical disputes about the things you believe, we must believe, and that belief must be assured conviction. That's where you have to be. It says, for by it, verse 2, Men of old received divine approval. Well, that's exactly what we're looking for, right? 
the gospel and the life. If I am going to, if I have two aspects of my faith, the gospel experience and the life experience, both of those are wanting to stand under the, you might say, the approval of God. Um, when it tells me in First Peter that if I suffer patiently under unjust punishment, I have God's approval. It lets me know something that I, that my faith could address that would gain me the approval of God. We are looking for God to look on our lives, each of us, uh, and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Because we know we are dealing with someone and someone who must be pleased. Someone who must be accounted for, someone who must be answered. When it says, we want to, I think Billy Graham had a book called Peace with God. It was very good for years and years, a good uh, giveaway. And, uh, but that's what we're all looking for. We're trying to get reconciliation. Salvation is not finding a better philosophy to live by in Christianity than in Buddhism. No, we're finding peace with an agent who, who the changes in us are required because he doesn't like them. That's it. He doesn't like them. And since he is much bigger and can slap us into the next galaxy, we have to pony up with, with paying attention to him and looking for this divine approval. By faith, we understand the world was created by the word of God. So that was what was seen was made out of things which do not appear. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, though through which he received approval as righteous. God bearing witness by accepting his gifts. He died, but through his faith he is still speaking. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was attested as having pleased God. You see this, and the rest of the chapter goes on like this, unless all sorts of people, starting after this with Noah. <laughs> but I didn't want to quote all those things. It was not so much... It were, it, it's beneficial to read, but you're saying, yeah, that is what we're all about. Old Testament, New Testament, getting the approval of God, and by faith, that approval was gained. And the writer of Hebrews then says, the bolded passage, now without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now that's one of my favorite verses of all time. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And... We have been seeking divine approval for centuries. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So our, the, the beginnings of this faith has the motivation. We want God's approval. We begin with proto-claims about God, the existence of God, and his benevolence. He is there, and he wants to be found by us. He rewards the seeker. Now those are, non-Christians can believe that. That's not the gospel. God's existence, if someone says, hey, I believe in God, well, that doesn't mean you're going to heaven. That's proto-faith, that's beginning faith, that's you have started to please God, and if you continue to seek him, he will reward you more and more. If at any point you stop seeking him, if you don't pursue him into the belief 
you are still, remember, you're condemned already. Belief uh, has to be fully engaged. The full expectation of belief is um, where you have to have assurance and conviction. Now, I've known people who claim to be Christians who would go through phases, well, I wonder if God really exists. Um, the problem is not that they asked such a thing. Well, I suppose it is. That's a really big problem, too. But, but it's not so much that someone would say something, what we would might say, a, a blasphemous or uh, sounds like apostasy or something that we sh you know, raise our hands and yell horrors. Um, it's not, it is what has happened to their faith, what has happened to assurance and conviction, either has, uh, they've allowed it to happen by the things we're going to look at, or they never got there in the first place. They, they um, I like to mention, I think I've mentioned before, they like to willfully suspend their disbelief. It's like going to a movie. Going to church is like going to a movie. And for the time you're there, you willfully suspend your disbelief and pretend that Christianity is true for the, for the interim. You know, and it makes you feel good that wouldn't it be nice if this were true, and I'll pretend and fool myself, and then I'll go through a hard time, and I'll find out that I really don't actually believe. I'll shake my fist at heaven, why God did you let my son die, that sort of thing, and uh, I'll be done with it. That's where, at every step of the way, where God asks for our faith, we have got to give it by his standards, assured conviction. Now, that faith, that, that definition applies to, to everything. You know, I, I believe in this chair, I believe in this room, I believe in the United States of America, I believe in uh, the galaxy, I believe in uh, all sorts of stuff. Over here on the side I have, uh, faith is the actively measured assent to a given claim. Everything that you encounter, everything is making a claim. Maybe not a very loud claim, maybe not a question claim, maybe not a claim that anybody would say anything contrary to, unless they're just philosophy you know, nerds and, and want to create an argument. The chair exists. I go, yeah, the chair exists. The chair's signal of its existence, its claim of existence, I see it, I sit in it, well, sitting in it is a, a bit more complete faith because I am risking my, my pride and my humiliation by falling down into a thing that looked solid to me and looked like it would hold me up, was not an illusion. That was the claim it was making. And I have actively measured an assent to that. I said, that's what it's claiming to be. I actively sitting in it. If you could not convince me to sit in it, even though I actively measured, I, I measured it out as making that claim, I would not be having faith, because you would go, okay, what's up? What, what do you What do you know that I don't know about that chair? Everybody do that to you in high school, where they had a busted chair in the classroom, and they kept trying to get you to sit in it. Go ahead, sit in it. Nothing wrong with it. They glued the sort of held the leg very slightly together, and knowing you're going to take a tumble. And as soon as you realize they would not sit in it you know that you shouldn't have the faith in it either. I mean, that's just, you know, Sherlock Holmes would figure that out. 
Now, when anything makes an assent to our claim, because the Bible's definition, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, well, there's a lot of things we don't see. There's fairies and there's there's uh, goblins and such. They, we don't see them either. Do I have to believe? Because I don't see them. Do I have to believe in them? No, there has to be a claim. A claim has to be made. And that claim made, you have to then consider. Now, the way you consider it, there, 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 the claim can be made by anyone or thing and should be given the degree of measured assent, commensurate, I liked using that word, commensurate with that claim's successful appeal to one of three things or a combination. Revelation, reason, or reality. Now, um, those are in many ways mixed together. They're most of the time are mixed together in how claims come across to us. Let me define what they are. Revelation means someone who knows and ought to know and is able to know tells you. It's revealed to you. A scientist tells you fluoride in your toothpaste will make you free of cavities. Uh, chlorine will kill the bugs in the water. Uh, we've tested this in labs. Now, see, as soon as the scientist said we tested it in labs, he's saying we have a reality moment that we measured it all out and made graphs and held clipboards and did all sorts of science things. And then when we came up with our reality conclusions, using reason, the laws of reason, we then became revelators of a, of a truth. And when they tell you about fluoride, and I realize some people don't believe in fluoride, when they tell you about something, we, we actively assent or don't. If we actively assent, we have faith in it. And we, in all of our things that we believe, we believe for the claims appeal to one of these three things. Now, it doesn't mean it was a good claim, or a bad claim, or a true claim, or a false claim, or they were lying to us, but we were measuring the strength of the revelation, the strength of the reason, and the strength of the reality. So that when you're on drugs, involuntarily, and for medical purposes only, and you see your dead grandma there chatting with you or playing pinochle with you in the hospital room. You've got a reality going on, but when you come down, you say, I thought I saw grandma here. No, she's still dead. Your reality was messed with. And so you examine all of these things. Now, since everything makes this appeal, and we never experience many doubts about the chair or about the country uh, or about the uh, you know things we all see, and nobody running around saying, "Well, if they're a crank, if they do, uh, the, the the sky is falling." Um, we don't really consider that much faith. We don't, you know, because the case has been made. We all read the case. Everybody triangulated with the, the proof that I had seeing the chair. You all saw. Nobody said, why'd you sit there? There wasn't any chair there. When I'm s sitting on the floor thinking there had been a chair. All of our life, we're used to living in this faith completely. It's still faith. It's more dicey when the things we are the claims that are made are unseen claims. It says here in Corinthians, in the margin, 5, 6, 
So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Paul was looking forward to his own resurrection of the body, his own dying and being with the Lord. Um, and these were not things he could lay his hand to. He could not point to the chair in the corner and have everybody in the room measure it. It was unseen. So the task of faith starts to become problematic. What it is is always the same. What it is is always the same. A series of claims made to our wills, to our whatever portion of your mental processes gives a scent of action. Um, that's well, how everything works. We're just saying, okay, in this region of faith where an unseen claim is made, must first believe that God exists. Well, no man has ever seen God. It says in the scriptures. No man has ever seen God. And anyone who would see my face uh, would die. We know that history has denied us. Even when God was on earth in the form of Christ, it was 2,000 years ago, and we, that's why he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We're, we're, we're leaping over something uh, when, or we're getting into a stratospheric range of faith where it is necessary, which it is necessary to have. Um, Andrew, there's notes right there. If you can grab a couple, there's room on the there or there's room there. Either way. We're still on page one. All right which is not a good sign. Um, we're down in uh, two-thirds of the way down with the Matthew passage. Um, when we don't have... So we, we know what faith is. Assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. That's the stratospheric level of faith that we have to deal with, but the faith properties of everything of making the same claim on the same uh, epistemic demands, or say epistemic claims that, that everything does. So God makes them, Christ makes them, the Holy Spirit makes them all in the same expectation that we believe a revelation, or we believe our reason, or we believe our experience. And God doesn't step away from those things. Um, because that is what he has given us, that he would know him. We, we talked about it in the Sublime Vision of God uh, uh, Bible study, about how God has uh, declared himself in all that he has made. He has declared the unseen with the things he made to be seen. Christ lays out his miracles and says, See, this is, you know, believe me for the miracles if you don't believe me for anything else, you know. It's kind of obvious I can do things like this, walk on water and stuff, raise the dead. But we realize that there is some inadequacy. Matthew 17. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. 
Jesus is not really pleased with his discipleship uh, core group here at this point. Why am I putting up with this faithless generation? For, I say, for truly I say to you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. You say, oh golly, not only do I struggle with faith, but very little of it successfully done is, if, if, if I get it right in small quantities, it's going to be miraculous or, or powerful. I like the Mark 9 passage here in the column. Jesus asked his father how long he had had this, and he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire, into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's where we are. You know, it's what we think, okay, sets a pretty high bar. Absolute assurance and conviction of the unseen things. So the things that have been revealed, the, the claims on me that the Bible makes, the claims that God has told me. Um, I know that I believe, but I don't believe completely. Or help where I don't believe. Or do I end up being ineffectual, running around as a Christian, trying to do the Christian stuff for people in the church, and, and it turns out nothing's working because I have little faith. Matthew 8. This is where we get start to get, you might say, some direction for our idea of faith. <coughs> Matthew 8, 5. As he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home in terrible distress. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion answered him, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard him, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, be it done to you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now, faith, obviously, the centurion doesn't even need Jesus to come by the house. I'm not worthy of that, but I know who's in command. I know where authority comes from. My belief is authority-driven. And he ties it to his military understanding. He knows who's in charge here and all he wants. And Jesus said, let it be to you as you have believed. Understanding the authority of the thing, making the claim. You have to... Um, and consequently, the authority of the thing, making the claim. If someone says, sit in that chair, Evan, and I don't, yeah, I'm a little suspicious, and they're just, they're mocking me and they're making it seem like they tore the leg off and they're setting me up. But say they didn't, they're just, just yanking my chain. 
Um, no big deal. I mean, I don't believe, so what? My lack of sitting in the chair, not a big cost. But just like the belief becomes more rarefied and more stratospheric as we move to the unseen, so comes the cost, so comes the command, so comes the expectation that we upend our whole lives for this claim of faith. Now in Luke 17, and I'm going to not read the whole thing, it's just this first paragraph, but it's the story about you have to forgive your neighbor 70 times 7. You must forgive him. If he turns to you 7 times in a day, well, it's not that 70 times, it's the 7 times. I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Hard to believe. you know. It's one of those things we're told to do, not like the centurion where they said, I know what the commands are, you just tell me what the commands are, and I'll believe. I'll believe that it's done. The Lord said to them, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, comes back to that again. You could say that the sycamine tree be rooted up and be planted in the sea. It would obey you. And then the very next thing he says, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and sit down at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and gird yourself and serve me till I eat and drink and afterward you shall eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also. When you have done all that is commanded you, say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. Jesus Christ comes to the same arena that the centurion is in, and he says, you guys, you know, this, this, with faith is accurate. If faith is planted in that which is, if faith is assured and convicted, and it knows the height from which the command or the claim comes, and what the claim asks of me, I, and I do it, I, that's where I ought to be. I should be thinking about my obedience, not trying to massage, you might say massage my faith. Faith is not the, they say increase my faith. He said, that's not the problem. Not the size of your faith. You don't need more faith. Obey the faith you claim to have. James 2. This is where it's, we might say, more explained. What does it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has not works? Can his faith save him? Now, most people, when they enter James 2, they automatically find themselves physically relocated in the Reformation and the problems Martin Luther had with this passage and, and the whole, okay, is it works or is it grace or is it... What's the combination? The Catholics have one view and the Protestants have another. And we get lost to what James is attempting to say. James is not post-Catholic. James is not Protestant. He's the brother of the Lord. Can his faith save him? Well, that's, what we, that's sort of the question that's on our boat. You know, we got two things that faith has to do. One is save you. One is be lived by. We want to be sure we have the right stuff to be doing that successfully. If he doesn't have works, this goes back to the centurion in the positive, greater faith I have not found in Israel, and um, I told you to forgive these guys. Oh, increase our faith. No, you do what you're told, for heaven's sake. No pun intended. If a brother or sister is ill-clad in lack of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what does it profit? 
So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. That's like not just half measures. It's not like that half covenant situation where you get to get saved by one kind of faith and then obedient by the law. You, it's just dead. Because remember, faith, according to Evan Wilson's definition, which could or could not be true, faith is the actively measured assent. Because if I don't, I'm not active in my assent, if it does not bear the commensurate action that the claim of faith has, it denies all the faith entire. I can't claim to believe and not do. And he says, someone will say, if you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I, by my works, will show you my faith. You try to divide these two worlds apart, and they can't be divided. And I will show you what I believe by what I do. Now that's an awfully um, pointed, well, that's just awful. Because whatever we do, we show what we believe. I mean, that's just, you, know, you, you come back around the other way and say, what I do is what I believe. So when I'm not obedient to Jesus Christ, when I'm not obedient to the Word of God, when I don't see the world the way he tells me to see it, I am showing not only that I don't believe him, but I believe something else. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons have a certain kind of assent. And this is confusing for us because we go, okay, they believe the theologically correct things about God. They believe that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. The demons believe that. They also believe that Jesus is the Christ. <laughs> they probably have a better sense of that than we do. Um, but they're still demons. And we sort of wonder, how can I, I know I believe all these true things. I'm orthodox. I, I got raised in the church. I, I know what's true. Uh, and I don't have any other religion that I'm hiding in my closet. I'm not a Baal worshiper on the side. He goes on to say that you could, from Abraham's example, that the active action of Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac was what God knew he did believe. He was believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So the body apart from the spirit is dead, this is down in verse 26, so faith apart from works is dead. It is that integral. It is the it is the, the physical form of what you claim to believe. Just like what you see in front of you is the physical form that whatever spirits that make up each one of us, the physical casing that we walk around in, it's so naturally together that we actually think we're seeing you when we see your body. Because they're so, they move together, they walk around together, they go to sleep together. They, they, your spirit and your mind choose things for your body and it does it. No questions asked. You wouldn't want to have a body that didn't have that interface, where the body didn't have any connection to the will of the Spirit that was in it. They just happened to occupy the same space. It would be frustrating to the Spirit and frustrating to the body. Now Jesus says here in Matthew 21, 
In the morning, he was returning to the city, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree on the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves only. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. The fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith, extra phrase that we've already have not yet covered, and never doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will be done. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. The thing he has added to it, never doubt. Oh, man. We sort of view our doubts as sort of a kind of a privilege of the post-enlightenment uh, rationalism that has filtered down to us from the 1700s, uh, uh, 1600s. We've, we like that, um, that sense of always questioning. People think they're the most spiritual when they're on the long search. They're just idiots. If they can't figure it out in that amount of time, they're just, they're just killing time. They're just marking time. They're, they're trying to avoid faith. We're supposed to, we know we're supposed to get to the place where faith actively is assurance, it is conviction. What do I, how do I get to that point of never doubting? Now, part of the problem is we set up things we weren't promised as tests for our faith. The old, uh, what's the uh, song by uh, Janis Joplin? Uh, oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches and I must make amends. You know, that, well, I really believe. And you get people in health and wealth gospel churches who are claiming everything that God has never promised them and trying to work the faith up to a point where the faith makes such an impression, changes the nature of things, and they get what they want. We know that the claim, what, that which I believe has a revelational authority, it has a reasonable authority, and has a reality authority. What am I claiming that came from? If God did not say it, why am I believing it? If it's just my own wishes, why am I trying to get up enough faith to get the Mercedes? I, 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 I might say I post doubt-free things at a place where doubt is almost necessary. Do you think you ought to be? I mean, someone, you know, if anybody walked into that room, if we're going to use the chair metaphor continuously, and everyone who looked at that chair walked away from it and go, I didn't sit in that, because it looked from the outset like it was not making any claim to be other than decorative. And if it was, and, and it was a big crack across the, and, and, and if I said, no, I, I, I really want, I believe this chair is, is good for me, and I weigh 300 pounds, and I sit in it. We wonder why the faith did nothing. In Romans, here on the margin, it says, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not act from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. He's talking about personal practices in the Christian life, about eating food offered to idols. And he says, it, it changes per person. It's relative in regard to that, that if I don't, it will be sin for me if I ate it, if I did not have the real faith that I was at liberty to do so. If I did not believe I was at liberty to do so, and I did so anyway, I would be condemned. 
I would be sinning. So we, we, we know that this, this um, you might say, the influx of, of data, the claim data coming to us from the revelation of God and the reason that we have and the reality we exist in, all of those things have got to be obviously considered rather closely. They are the things that everything, and, and your faith is going to be individual to you given how much, you might say, you've been convinced that this is what God allows. If you don't feel that God allows you to eat food offered to idols, then you better not eat it because God wants you to act entirely from assurance and conviction that you believe this is the way it ought to be. In Romans 4, I had initially, I had uh, the first 13 verses in there as well, and I mean, think, okay, I've got to trim this, trim this down. It's all about faith. Most of Romans is about faith. Um, the, um, oh, what I want you to look at is down there in verse 19. Speaking of Abraham, and all this is depending on faith, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, because he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he was strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. But the words it was reckoned to him were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him that raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, look at Abraham. Look at the nature of that belief. He had data coming into him contrary to the promise of God. The promise of God is, you're going to have a son. I'll make this promise to you, you're 75 years old. I'll be back in 25 years, and you still won't have that kid. And I'll tell you again, you're going to have the kid. And you're going to be a lot older then. And the old lady, she's really going to be the old lady. Okay? And she's barren. She's, she was barren when she was young and hot. Now she's old and barren, and not hot. We imagine. We can all imagine. 100-year-old woman. No distrust made him waver. He did not weaken, weaken in faith when he considered the promise of God. He managed it as he gave glory to God. When we're, we're shooting for the stratospheric level of assurance and conviction, we have got to, we're measuring all the claims accurately according to what is revealed, what has God said, what has God promised, what has God offered, and then... We have to be accurate, not erroneous. And then we grow strong in it as we glorify God about it. It was written that way for us, Paul's writing. Yeah, he said it, was, it wasn't written for him, it was written for us. So that's, that, that just makes it awkward, because with someone like Abraham, who's going down as a hero of the faith, and you look at the list in Hebrews, and you get this long list of people, and your name's not on it, uh, and you wonder if your name would ever be on it. 
in John, First John, um, it talks about the witnesses of Jesus Christ. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. Uh, that's an aside. John, in his gospel, writes, when he's at the cross, he knows when they run the spear to the side of Christ, water and blood came out, and he makes a point of saying, I was there, I witnessed the water of the blood. This was, I'm writing this, that you will believe. He comes back, same apostle, and says, the water and the blood, that's his, you might say, cliche or, or truth claim. I was there at the death of this Christ. The, the spirit is the witness because the spirit is truth. There are three witnesses, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Now remember, when we're being asked to believe something, claims always go to revelation, reason, and reality. John was there at the cross. He could say, I can reveal what I witnessed. Just like a man in a courtroom would say, I saw him murder him. I saw Jesus Christ die. The testimony of men, if we receive that, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he has borne witness to his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. <laughs> so one of the things you begin to realize is you're being entrusted, 1 John deals with this quite a bit, you've been entrusted with, you might say, evidential testimony by the Spirit of God. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. His life is in his Son. So if we don't believe what God has said clearly, let's say, okay, we'll shove all the Mercedes-Benz hopes and dreams off to the side. We're not trying to work miracles here. We're just trying to believe in Jesus the Christ, God, Christian promises about salvation for everyone and the, and the holy life thereafter. What are we, uh, when we do not believe, we make God a liar because God has said. If we do not, if we say there has not been a change in me, if they say, I said, if there's not this eternal life, this testimony has, it is in yourself. There's going to be, uh, at some point, you need to explain to yourself, when I do accuse God of not telling the truth, though I already believe, what does it say? If we receive the testimony of men, we do that all the time. We do that, we listen to our, our stockbroker, and to great problems the last few years. We, we listen to the mechanic at the shop, uh, sometimes suspiciously. We, we listen to our doctors. And we'll go out and we will walk down to Rose Hours, go to the pharmacist in the back, hand him a slip of paper, he will hand me back, who knows what, from a scribble by a doctor, he's going to hand me back stuff that I will then ingest knowing that it is behind that glass wall for a reason. Because it's dangerous. And I'm taking, oh yeah, I'll take that bill. Absolutely. Let's walk through that. No problem. We take the testimony of men. When do we stop taking the testimony of men? Probably for the same reason we stop taking the testimony of God, which is greater than the testimony of men. 
is when we uh, actually start reading some conspiracy theory websites or we start uh, reading books about what uh, fluoride really does to you. We start to believe something else. Now, in the uh, James passage, count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials. Look at the second verse, verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What, what happens to us in life is this conversation whispering to us, yelling at us, saying all sorts of things to try to set up another claim for our actively measured assent. And when some housewife at home, some guy at work, some student in, on the campus starts to struggle with what God has promised and verges on calling God a liar, what he has said clearly, you don't, you're actually, your apologetic with them is not going to be about, well, why do you think God is a liar? Because that's not where it came from. It came from failing to stand under the testing. Their faith did not grow steadfast. They didn't stand under it. It says in Ephesians 4 here in the margin, so that we may long, no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the cunning of men, by their craftiness in deceitful wiles. In the Timothy passage, right under it, the list of bad things that people do and bad teachers that come out, down to verse 6, for among them there are those who make their way into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and swayed by various impulses who will listen to anybody and can never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And then it says, either men of corrupt mind and counterfeit faith. That's going on all around us. Someone asking us to believe something else. Everything we believe, if it's held up to reason and revelation and the reality we exist in, can walk hand in hand through our life. But since we are not really actually measuring what we believe on the basis of... Now, when I say... The claims are argued by revelation, reason, and reality. I don't mean with ontological certitude. It's not like God writes in the sky, you know, da -da 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 -da, this is true. You know, well, if Jesus Christ the Lord may strike me down, you get struck down. You know, the, those things are, might give you certainty, but we're not looking for certainty. We're looking for what faith acts on in every case. Faith acts on it in every case. The struggles of faith happen when we don't realize how much the faith needs to be assured and convicted and we let it slide all the while deceitful wiles every wind of doctrine other ideas coming into your head telling you just it's just as true to believe the enlightenment as it is to believe christianity it's just as true to believe this pastor as it is to believe jesus christ it's just as true to believe my parents as to believe jesus christ i keep getting these other messages. It says in verse 4, I'd be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, if that steadfastness worked out. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now people grab that and pull it out of the context as a how to get wisdom verse. But look at how it, uh, it, it talks about you'd be lacking in nothing. If you lack something, like wisdom, let him ask God. 
God gives all men generously without reproaching, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, will receive anything from the Lord. That's a key verse. A double-minded man. A double-minded man is a man who has shared his faith principles between agents of claim, and he doesn't realize, maybe because they're not all in the same category, you know, if I, we think because in our religious category we keep ourselves nice and orthodox, but we only visit the religious category when we go to church, or when we're in a conversation about religion. But then in my life at home, or my life at work, I had an entirely different wind of doctrine that has established a series of beliefs for me that makes me double-minded. And I, I cannot, without doubt, with no doubting, never doubting, ask God for things. Because I always have, in the back of my mind, these other claims, not God's, but claims like God's, making me call God a liar. Or setting me up to call God a liar. That's why it says, Blessed is the man who endures trial, down in verse 12. We doubt when we believe a contrary claim. Now, I've said, you know, when people come to me with doubts, and they have uh, with some frequency, um, I said, well, first off, doubts are not an answer. Doubts are a question. If you treat the doubt as an answer, eh, you're just messing. You're just playing. It's, doubt is not an answer. It's a question. If the doubt is then answered so that you know whom you will serve, either the French Enlightenment or Jesus Christ, then we've made some progress. The doubt produced a question, and you were going to decide whose revelation of truth you were going to hold to. Who had the argument? Who was reasonable? Where do I exercise my faith? But doubt, as it is left there, is unanswered or is viewed as an answer. If it's viewed as an answer or is left unanswered, it leaves you unsuccessful. Because the double-minded man how can he expect to get anything from God? It says here in Romans, great passage out of Romans 10 on the Gospel, what does it say? The word is near you on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For a man believes with his heart and so is justified and he confesses with his lips and so is saved. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. So it's much like what we already said regarding um, action, obedience to the, to the demands of the claim. It not only says, and when it says your heart, it means down to the center of your being, there's no doubting, and you confess with your lips. Like James insisted, you do what your faith claims. You say what your faith claims. Now down in verse 14, it says, How are men to call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? All rhetorical questions. This lets you know what the source of this revelation of God is. God expects us to hear the revelation of God, not in some Elijah-like, still small voice in a cave in, the, uh, in Edom, but um, 
for the preaching of men sent out to preach. He says in verse 17, So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes by the preaching of Christ. We encounter the demands of the gospel, the presentation of the scripture. We're reading a lot of scripture, and I'm sorry about that, but it's the preaching of Christ. You hear it in churches all over the country. You hear it in, in street preachers, if they're, if they're good men. People declaring Jesus Christ to someone. They're saying, this is the revelation of God. Now that person has to consider the revelation of God. Just hearing the revelation of God doesn't make him believe. But faith comes by the preaching of Christ, by hearing it. Why does it come that way? Because what does, what does the claim rest on? It claims to be, it, the guy doesn't say, well, I just heard down the bar on the corner that if you believe in a guy named Jesus, you know, you, you go to a good place when you die? You heard in a bar? No. You believe from the scriptures. And it's necessary, Corinthians here, because I, quickly over on the Mark passage, Mark 13 on the side column, if then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Okay, now we have a new category. We've got to spot not only things that contend for our actively measured assent, but things that lie to us and that we think because Christians are supposed to be fightiests, faith-oriented people, and you see, you know, Joel Osteen preaching to 10,000 people and you go, oh, my heavens. Well, false teachers have gone out into the world. And people are sitting there like they're receiving the word of God. False Christs are out there. False prophets are out there. Don't believe them. So all of a sudden I have to say, I have to separate good and bad claimants from, of revelation. And it's not only important that I separate good and bad claimants of revelation, but understand the force of a bad claim. Now, Corinthians 15 is about the resurrection. This section says... I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preached to you the gospel which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold it fast, unless you believed in vain. Now that, it's not talking about you and your lack of faith, but the vanity of the belief is covered down at the end of the passage. When he says, whether it was, they, was I or they, so we preached, so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached, is raised from the dead, how could some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. That's what he meant by saying, unless you believe in vain. The problem is, there are false teachings out there that can't make good claim on the revelational status from God. There are the danger of, if I believe something, I don't care how warm and fuzzy it makes you feel. I don't care if it makes your life better. Pascal was wrong on this point. Pascal's wager about, well, if you believe in God and I'm right, you'll have a wonderful life and go to heaven. If you believe in God and I'm wrong, you'll have a wonderful life and die and nothing happens. Well, that's incorrect. As Paul says, we're of most men, of all men, most to be pitied. 
if we're walking around representing God as holding this sort of notion, offering this kind of salvation, it matters that it be right. For you, your task of faith is not merely getting enough gumption of faith up, watching out. It's not just understanding that faith has obedience. Faith has a life that you are can't claim the faith until you have the life. You have to watch out for your double-mindedness, but you also have to watch out to make sure that you understand the, you might say, the importance of being right in relationship to the things you claim and the being not being wrong because of the presence of wrong uh, appeals to you all over the place. John 1 John 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh, is of God. Now he gets down in verse 5, he says, They are of the world. These are people that are false teachers. Therefore, what they say is of the world, and the world listens to them. We are of God. Whoever knows God listens to us. And he who is not of God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So he's talking about the apostolic authority, and he's saying we know God. And if you want to claim to be a Christian, the revelation of God has come through his apostles. And if you listen to his apostles, if you listen to his revelation, you can claim to be a Christian. Now, if you listen to, you know, the Buddha... You get to claim to be a Buddhist, but you don't get to claim to be a Christian. To be a Christian, you have to listen to what the claim is. You have to sort out the claims and say, yeah, I think God revealed this. This has got great testimony historically and rationally and experientially, and I have the testimony in myself, and and I know that far above all other religions, Christianity has got the, the bona fides, and I believe it. I believe these people. That's how I test the spirit of truth, the spirit of error. Guy comes along and he's messing with St. Paul, messing with St. Peter, messing with St. James. I just go, okay, I know the spirit of truth, the spirit of error. I know know how important it is to keep my faith at a high level, untainted by doubt, believing what God has said, and not believing what he has not said. Or, Or not believing automatically what he has not said. It's an important thing. We check the content. We check the source. Now, this last passage is mostly a conclusion passage. I I just want to lay out what it is. One of my favorite ones to teach through over the years is John 8. Um, And the interesting thing is, if you're you're reading devotionally through your Bible, you don't always pick these things up. But verse 1 says, I mean, verse 30 says, As he spoke, many believed in him. Red line. Jesus then said to the Jews who believed in him. Look over to the other side of the page. Verse 59. So they took up stones to throw at him. That's the end of the conversation. Okay? Now, in between those two points, it got a little dicey. And he says things like, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. Verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And they make objections every step of the way. 
He says, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you, verse 37. And they make some rude remark back. Jesus said to them, verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded and came forth from God. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. You can understand why I got a little violent at the end. Your will is to do your father's desires. Down in verse 45. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. In red and 46, if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? And that's the tension we have with all of our faith. I have got to render a judgment about that which is claiming to be true. Jesus Christ claims to be the Son of God, Savior. He claims to be Lord of heaven and earth, creator of heaven and earth. He claims to be and, and a number of things. You could list them um, in free time. If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? They suggest he has a demon, that he was born of fornication, all sorts of other nasty infighting of uh, theological lost tempers. And then he gets to the end of verse 58 and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Which was around the bend for Jews. That was like kicking a Koran down the street of Mecca. You know, that was more than you ought to do. He was claiming the name of God, the I am, and he was actually in the content before Abraham was, I am. So they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The question I have is, our Christian life like this? Um, I know Christians who always kind of feel ennobled by arguing with God. It's fine. What kind of relationship with the God are you having? Are you trying to, do you realize that all truth, that every, every argument I bring up to God rests in some other revelatory, revelatory claim, rational claim, or reality claim that I cobbled together from my psych professor and brought it before the Lord of heaven and earth and said, here, I think you're wrong, and I think my professor, my freshman level whatever, is right. Because that's all you can do. You can bring another faith. You can question him and call him a liar only if you realize that you subject... And I asked this, a girl I knew, uh, a thinky type of girl, I grew up in a Christian home, seemed to be doing just fine, parents got divorced, she fell away from the faith, bad. And she liked to cover it up in all sorts of thinky objections, you know, well, what about this, and what about that? And I said, have you noticed how you never, ever required the same apologetic of where you've gotten as to where you were. All your doubts were facing Christianity, but none of your doubts were facing any of the men who have told you this stuff. Yeah, that, that just gets believed. Jesus Christ? God? No. He has to, he has to open the heavens and show himself to you, but you know, you'll believe Freud, you'll believe whomever. Everything, summing it up in, in a sense, everything that is said, everything that, you, that, that exists in this world makes a claim. This rug, does it exist? Yes. No. 
I don't know. Those are your options. Yes, no, I don't know. Well, we sometimes forget, we think that the onus is on the person who said yes. Well, the person who said yes doesn't mind the onus being on him because he can pony up with an awful lot of reasons. He can get the tape measure out, he can take clippings off it, send it to a lab, find out what kind of wool, all sorts of things. He can measure, uh, 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 take a measurement of all the colors, he can, he can talk to the people who made the rug, he can produce evidence in a court of law. But there's just as much onus on the person who says, I don't know, or no. They just think they can get away with doubt. No, everything is responding to a claim. And if you are a, you might say, an infant, rationally, you ignore obvious things. You doubt the chair, you doubt the carpet, you doubt God. The evidence is loud. It's not ontological certitude, but all the evidence stacked up. If I were to say, okay, um, we're going to have a, a, a call to Jesus, a call to carpet moment. Okay, the call to carpet moment, we're going to all decide whether or not we believe in this carpet, go around the room, how many of you believe in the carpet, and every one of you are going to say, yes, I believe in the carpet. Now, you had to exercise faith to do it. Because really, someone could come in here and say, this is all an illusion. There is no carpet. There is no spoon, I think is the um, matrix. matrix thing. There is no spoon. There is no carpet. Oh, but most of you would say, hey, there's a lot of evidence for this carpet. I'm going to stand on the top of this hill called the carpet proofs, and I'm going to jump the last distance, very short, of claiming the carpet exists. That's how it is with all things. The revelation of God, the reasonable arguments of philosophy, the reality that surrounds us as evil people and good people and the nature of the creation, all those things are a mountain of evidence on which we stand. Everything else that challenges you, that's bringing up these other doubts, that says, hey, let's be double-minded, you need to ask to make the same demands on it. Don't let them crawl up to having an equal-sized mountain next to your Christian claims, as if, oh my gosh, I don't know, it's back and forth. It's not two equal-sized mountains, there's a little molehill and there's a mountain. You have to jump off the top of one in faith toward the thing you're, 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 you're affirming. So that's basically where we are, that the, that the basic things of faith are actually not rocket science. They're basically uh, things we do all the time and we're very comfortable with the procedure. We're just not very uh, studious. We're not very, we don't have a lot of integrity about what we look at we let our sins and our, our pleasures and our passions step in between the integrity of a faith claim and, uh, and our decisions. Well, let's thank God. I've gone well over. Dear Lord, thank you very much for the faith we have. We'd ask that our lives would be established in what you claim for us. Um, we're very grateful for what you have said very grateful for how reasonable it all is and how it ties in with this world. Um, keep us alert to the own, our own deceptions of ourselves. In your son's name, amen.